Hi, everyone, and welcome to Jesus Unmasked, an invitation to join a search for the living Christ in scripture and in our lives. I'm Lindsay Paris Lopez, writer for The Raven Review, aspiring peacemaker and aspiring follower of Jesus. And I'm Adam Erickson, writer at The Raven Review and pastor in the United Church of Christ. This is episode nine for the second Sunday after Epiphany. In this episode, we discuss John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. In Jesus Unmasked, we seek to remove the masks of exclusive theology and violent cultural lenses that obscure the truth, that Jesus is unconditional love. In the unmasked face of Jesus, there is hope, acceptance, and forgiveness that frees us from fear, that we may live into our fullest selves as reflections of God's love. We explore scripture through the New Revised Standard Version, and we use the Common Lectionary. So we are in year A, and it goes from the Gospel of Matthew, and sometimes it switches over to the Gospel of John, uh, because John needs some love too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, we have three years, and we go through Matthew and Mark and Luke, and John just kind of... um, Interspersed. He just has little bursts throughout. Yeah. So, uh, so today we get a little bur- burst from John, like that. <laughs> We're at John chapter one, verses twenty-nine through forty-two. It's a little lengthy passage, but I will go ahead and read it. There's some good stuff in here. This text says this: The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, "Here is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said." After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which means Peter. So, Lindsay, I have some questions about this passage. First, mm. first, uh, what I think that one of the important things to look at is what is meant by John frequently says, this is the Lamb of God. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God? I think that there's been a lot of theology that we have to unlearn, and mimetic theory helps us unlearn (laughs) a lot of um, 
dangerous, destructive theology, because oftentimes when we see Lamb of God, we instinctively go to, this is Jesus whom God sacrifices as God's Lamb. Mm -hmm. Yes, Lamb is very sacrificial language. And I mean, it's interesting, right? Because when I think about human sacrifice, as Gerard helps us understand it, the lamb has sacrificial connotations, but it also has the connotation of innocence and, and blamelessness and, you know, without blemish. And the way Jesus is actually killed, his innocence goes unrecognized. And what does it mean for people to hear this is the Lamb of God and suddenly want to follow him? I mean, they're probably not hearing this is the one who will be sacrificed to take away your sins. I mean, that doesn't sound like someone that I would necessarily want to follow. That doesn't sound like a leader. That doesn't sound like someone who, um, you know, if, if the people are thinking this is the one that God is going is going to kill for our sakes, it doesn't sound like someone that you would want people, you know, you would want to necessarily follow. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think the thing that we have to unlearn is that God is the one who is making the sacrifice of the lamb. <laughs> like oh, yeah. You can't, yeah, no, right? absolutely. You can't, you can't like, get away from you can't get away from sacrificial language in the Bible. The question is who is doing the sacrifice, right? Right. So, I'm, I'm so wondering this... what, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just wondering what the disciples or what the people who followed him were thinking. Did they already know that it wasn't God who was, who was offering him up for the sacrifice? I mean, that seems like something they would have to learn. Um, yeah. Uh, hmm. Right. So like who does the offering God offers the lamb to us. And the question is always, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to sacrifice the lamb or are we going to follow the lamb in offering nonviolent love to the world? Uh, I think that's where the innocence, as you mentioned, comes in, right? So Jesus uh, is innocent of all of the charges, but we always assume that he's guilty <laughs> of mm -hmm. charges, right? Uh, and we'll make up, we'll trump up charges against uh, people, pun intended, and mm -hmm. we will assume that they're guilty uh, of horrible deeds, and maybe they are, but what does the Lamb of God do uh, in response to that? Uh, doesn't, doesn't kill them, <laughs> right? <laughs> doesn't go after them. Uh, but seeks to transform. And that's what I think this passage and the whole Gospels are about, our transformation away from the ways of sacrificing and towards the way of offering ourselves in nonviolent love to one another, even to those we call our enemies. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world? I mean, that's a universal statement. Like the whole world, the whole the whole cosmos, <laughs> as it's in Greek, uh, what does that mean? Do you think is this a is this a point of universalism? I mean, I think so. I'm wondering how the disciples, how John the Baptist himself would have seen it as he's as he's making this announcement, and how the people who would drop everything to follow Jesus would see it as well. John has come preaching repentance, and he himself has 
separated himself from the world. He's he's gone off into the wilderness and he's on a diet of locusts and honey and wearing crude, itchy clothing. So he's probably, you know, considering himself in a state of repentance as well. So are these people who are following Jesus, are they aware of their own sins that need um, that need transformation? Or are they thinking in terms of this is the one who will free us from the oppression of Rome and the oppression of those who lord it over us? Um, do they see him as, you know, how do they view sin? Do they see themselves as sinners or or do they see the sins of the world as that which is which comes up over against them to keep them down? Do they see themselves as participants? Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about that is that he doesn't say that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's just mm-hmm. the sin of the yeah. world. Yeah, right? singular. So it's, it's singular. <laughs> So, so what is that about? I mean, I think one of the things that uh, mimetic theory helps us to see is like the the big sin that you see throughout the Bible is is violence. Is right. this kind of is this it's that's the sin that's there that gets connected with uh, the flood of Noah, right? The world was wicked and it was wicked because it was there was violence everywhere. Um, so there's this like distinction that we make between us and them and we uh, demonize others we dehumanize others we think that they can we can uh, kill them without remorse and this is like this seems to be throughout the bible the sin that jesus came to save the world from is mm-hmm. our own violence against one another mm-hmm. the singular is very important because it is that it is violence in which we are all caught up and it is it is singular in that it is not you know it's not just we can't separate their sin from our own because it's all connected the cycle of violence connects us to each other in an ever escalating cycle of retribution and vengeance and tit-for-tat, action-reaction, and it all blends together. And so you can't separate it out into us and them after a point. The question of who started it becomes irrelevant because it just keeps going back to the beginning of time. Yeah, and you see this, so this baptism when uh, it says, and I myself have testified that this is the Son of God. So John sees that this is um, God's Son. And we often forget how how Jewish this Son of God language is. I tend to frequently go to, you know, empire language and say this uh, Caesar was called the Son of God, and now Jesus is the new Son of God, and this is anti-imperialism. And it is. It, it, it is all of that. But it's also deeply rooted in the Jewish context. So you go and you look at um, Psalm chapter two and 
Verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And this is this is crucial to understand how deeply rooted son of God language is in the in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, this is David and Jesus is like the new King David, right? This is the, the new Messiah. But the the bigger picture of this and what we're getting at here is this whole nation's language, right? This isn't just for us and not for them. This Jesus expands to fulfill this uh the son of God language to spread this out to all of the nations of the earth. We're seeing this Psalm two uh, being enacted throughout the life of Jesus uh, mm-hmm. as the one who, who uh, lives in Gentile territory for, for a while, Zebulun, the nation, the land of the Gentiles, uh, Capernaum, the land of the Gentiles. Right. And you, yeah, you traced it to Psalm two, which, which goes back to David, but I mean, when you go further back, the whole founding of Israel was, it was founded to be a blessing to all the world. God's blessing to Israel was a blessing to, to the whole world. So the son of God is the one who takes God's blessings and, and allows them to permeate through the whole world that goes along it's the other side of the coin of taking away the sin of the world is is distributing or letting blessing flow to the whole world that's what the son of god is is there to do to come into the world to be born human into the world in order to give god's blessing to the whole world yeah let's uh, should we move on to the second part of this reading <laughs> I think we yeah. mind mind the first part pretty well. Uh, so this the second part is about um, discipleship. And uh, the next day after the baptism, John again is standing with two of his disciples, and Jesus walks by, and John says, "Look, it's the Lamb of God." And then two of John's disciples go off following Jesus. This is interesting. <laughs> they like just they're like, "Whatever, John, we're done with you," and they go on and they follow Jesus. You know, after they leave, we're not on John anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the camera pans over to Jesus and John's story is is kind of done, at least as far as as those disciples who leave him for Jesus are concerned. Um, but what I think is really interesting is that John shows shows no resentment, no rivalry. His disciples, I mean, it it says that they were his disciples. These were his students learning from him. And he says, there is the Lamb of God. He is, in effect, telling his students to go off with Jesus. I mean, he all but says, go follow him. I mean, mm-hmm. what else? What else can you possibly do when your teacher says, there's the one I've been pointing to all along? So John is is completely non-rivalrous when it comes to Jesus. And, and there's, of everything he taught his disciples, I think this lesson, this final lesson in letting them go might be the biggest lesson of all. 
we should all strive to learn that kind of humility and, and complete non-jealousy. It's, it's definitely a lesson I still need to learn. It's, it would be, I think it would be hard for me to see, to see people walk away from me, but John, not, you know, John, not only lets them, he tells them, he says, he, he almost says, I'm done. Go with him now. It's, yeah, John knows that it's not about him. It's not about his ego. It's about something much bigger than himself that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is which is a good lesson to learn. Yeah, and a difficult yeah. one, as you say. Yeah, right. I mean, he has he's baptized Jesus and almost passed the torch to him. It seems, although when he baptized Jesus, he he protested. He said, "I shouldn't be doing this." He didn't even want to accept his role of any kind of what might have looked like authority over Jesus. Jesus had some humility in order to be baptized by John. And then uh, this in the scripture, it says that John actually saw the spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. You know, in Matthew, it says that Jesus saw the spirit descend upon him. This is an indication that John saw it too. And it makes me wonder, you know, how many people actually saw the Spirit descend on Jesus. And I wonder if John's sense of of humility and non-rivalry is what opened his eyes to the miracle of the Spirit descending on Jesus in the first place. I, I think so. I think that, that John was able to see it precisely because he was in a place where he didn't feel the need for competition or asserting himself. And that's that's the place that Jesus is trying to bring us all to, where we don't feel the need to assert ourselves, to assert our own authority, because our identities are given to us by God and we don't have to prove them or fight for them or best anyone else for them when we can just receive who we are lovingly from God then we're in a position to see God in everyone else um just like John saw in Jesus yeah and when the two disciples start following Jesus they have an interesting response because Jesus says hey guys what are you looking for and they respond not with an answer maybe they don't know what they're looking for but they respond with a question of their own they say uh where are you staying Mm -hmm. and jesus says come and find out right right (laughs) he says come and see Yeah. yeah um uh paul nectarline um in his excellent um commentary in the gerardian lectionary.net helped helped me to understand that the word staying could also be read as abiding. Where are you abiding? And, you know, you can't give a short answer. You can't say, I'm staying at John's house or I'm staying at Mary's house. You, you know, abide is not, is not a quick, easy, one place answer. Um, Jesus says, come and see because that is the only way to understand. You can't, you know, you can't tell, you have to show and they have to follow him to see that he is abiding 
you know, he's abiding in the Father. He's abiding in God. And he's saying, come and see God working through me. You know, come and follow and you will see where I am staying, where I have a hold in the hearts of all the people, you know, that I will go and minister to. Um, it's not a yeah, quick there's also, answer. Yeah, there's also a sense in which, you know, throughout the Gospels, you get a sense that the Spirit is going to blow wherever it will, and the Spirit has just descended upon Jesus. Mm -hmm. And part of that blowing wherever it will is that you cannot grasp onto this spirit. You cannot control this spirit. We often have uh, control issues <laughs> and mm -hmm. we want to, we want to be able to control God. And that's part of what I think this question is getting at. Where are you going? Maybe Jesus doesn't even know where he's going because he's been infused with this spirit. that's going to go wherever it's needed to go. And so Jesus's plans are going to take a back seat to wherever the spirit is going to take him. So he says, come and see, and we'll come yeah. and see together. <laughs> no, that is, that is such, that's such a beautiful point. Like I can't send you on ahead to wherever I plan to rest my head for the night because I have no plans, no future. I only have this moment. I'm going to walk and whoever needs my help will get my help. And by the end of the day, I'm going to be wherever I am. And <sighs> that's where that's where you should be, too. The idea that we can, you know, that's so foreign to us right now because we need or at least I need to have plans and a sense of structure and a sense of this is what I'm going to do with my day and you know, if something disrupts that, I feel out of place. And I mean, not Jesus, you know, there's, there's no, there's no future, there's only now. And there's, there's the work of now, which is constant, which is healing and showing God's love. I mean, the only, the only thing that I want to, that I want to add is that Right now, in in the real world, as as Adam and I are recording this, it looks like the nation is going to war, and we're reading about Jesus calling his disciples. And I don't know what they think they're getting themselves into, but they probably they they might foresee some kind of militaristic type mission um, from coming from the Messiah. They might see themselves as becoming soldiers in some kind of battle. And I mean, this is Jesus gathering his followers, but he's, he's not making an army. He is gathering those who are going to be commissioned to do the work of peace. And when we think about what it takes to drop everything and follow Jesus, if we're going to follow in the footsteps of these disciples, if we're going to hear the voice of Jesus and follow, then that means that we need to put aside any ideas of, of violence and you know, we follow Jesus 
on the path of peace. And that path can be dangerous when everyone else is marching to war. And we have to pray that we're ready to do that um, because that's the only way the world is going to be transformed. I don't really have too many words beyond that, just just prayers. Um, when we think about following Jesus, we need to think, especially when the drums of war are beating, Jesus is calling us away from them. Oh, you know, he, actually, he's calling us into the same places where the drums of war are beating, you know, because those are the places that will need love and will need healing. But he's not calling us to take up our weapons and he's not calling us to bang the same drums. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, friends, that is it for today. I am Adam. And I'm Lindsay. And thank you for listening to this episode of Jesus Unmasked. Jesus Unmasked is produced by the Raven Foundation, where we talk about faith and mimetic theory. Check out more of our work at ravenfoundation.org. You can connect with Raven on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with your friends or your enemies, because Jesus calls us to love them too.